Good morning, Mercy House. I said good morning, Mercy House. All right, there it is. We're really glad that you are here. Welcome to our monthly family worship Sunday where we invite all of our grade level children to join us uh, and stay with us for the service and where we gear some teaching time toward them. And we've been doing this pretty regularly and we do this in order to remember uh, that our children are a part of our church community. We love them. Uh, we're charged to care for them. We're charged to prayerfully raise them uh, to know and love God. And so we invite them into this space and in order to help us remember our calling and our our responsibility as a church community that we have to them, but also to introduce them into what a corporate church worship and a church gathering looks like. Um, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8, where you have tens of thousands of people, and they're gathering together to hear the word of the Lord being read and to be taught. And it's this incredible moment of spiritual renewal and revival for the entire nation of Israel. And we see that it wasn't just like the older people. If you go back to chapter 8 and verse 2, it says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. So this implies the older retired generation. It also included the empty nesters, the middle-aged, the younger marrieds and younger singles, the teenagers, and then the kiddos as well. And if everyone who was there who could understand what was being heard, if they were all there, I don't think they left the babies at home either. So I think the babies were also there. So tens of thousands of people. I'm sure it was a very chaotic uh, space. I'm sure there were many different distractions. But what we see in chapter 8 is a miraculous working of the Spirit of God showing up. And as the Word of God is being read and taught, it is affecting and moving the people of God on a scale of national revival that was multi-generational. So that's the glimpse of what we're trying to see here as a church and trying to realize. That's why we have our kiddos here this morning, because it's a biblical thing to do. Uh, and it's a good reminder for us, the church is not just about our own individual personal experience of worship of God. And so with that being said, I want to invite all of our little kiddos up to the front. I've got a teaching time just for you. So if you are little, younger, grade level, let's go. That means you, Davey, Chloe, Kai, Ellie, Andy. Any more? Any more stragglers back there? I can't see. I'm kind of no more. Oh, there's one, but Chloe, come on. Oh, and Caleb and Millie. Let's go. All right. Well, this morning, kiddos, we're going to talk about why we follow rules. Rules. Rules seem to be everywhere, don't they? Who rides the bus in the morning? Some of you? Okay, what are some rules for the bus? Are there any rules on the bus? Um, Caleb, go. No standing up. No standing up. Chloe? No crawling under the seat. No crawling under the seat. Kai? Spitting. No spitting. Andy? I don't, I don't you can't eat on the bus. You can't eat on the bus, yeah. Okay. I saw another hand over here. Any other rules? Who does like sports or does dance or something like that? What are some rules for when you're playing sports or at dance? Let's start with Andy. In soccer, you can't pick up the ball and throw it into the goal. That's right. You can't use your hands in soccer to throw it into the goal. Ellie? Um, in my rule, we're not allowed to do whatever we're not allowed to Yeah, in your dance class, you're not allowed to do whatever you want. You have to listen to the teacher, right? Caleb? Um, you're not allowed to push. You're not allowed to push? Fair. Chloe? Um, 
You have to do a, if you're spinning when your teacher is teaching, you have to do a plank? Wow. That's intense. Caitlin, you know about that? <laughs> well, what about at home? Do you guys have any rules at home that you have to follow? Yeah, Kai is nodding and said, Kai, what are some rules from home? You can't go on screens for hours. That's a rule. Yeah. Would someone raise their hand here? Andy, did you have something? I can't go into the closet and eat all my Halloween candy. You can't go into the closet and eat all your Halloween candy. Caleb? You can't sneak plants versus zombies. You can't sneak plants versus zombies. Yep. Any other rules at home? Why do you think that it's important to listen and obey rules? Ellie? Mm, right. If you don't obey rules, then there are consequences. So that's one reason to obey the rules. Why else? Um, because your mind can't to you, but you yeah, so we obey rules because sometimes we can get hurt or things that are, that, that are bad could happen to us if we don't. Any other reasons why we follow rules? Yeah, Andy. That's right. It's not fun if everyone's picking up the soccer ball and just running it into the goal. Right. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why we follow rules, or at least something that we know, is that the the rules that are given to us by people who love us and who care for us, uh, those rules are for our good. And so the people who love you, they don't want you to be miserable. That's not why they give you rules. And honestly, if you're miserable, then they're likely going to be miserable as well. And people who love you uh, want what's absolutely best for you, and that's why these rules exist. And sometimes it's just to have fun, like on the sports field. Is it sometimes hard to follow rules? Yes, a resounding yes from the children. Well, what, what rules do you not like following? Kai? In school, I cannot wear hoods. In school, you can't wear hoods. That's a rule for you too, Andy. I can't go in the closet and eat all the candy. You can't go, yeah, you can't go in the closet and eat all the candy. Chloe, what rule don't you like? You can't wear hats at school. You can't wear hats at school. Yeah. At, like at any time? Only at recess. Yeah. At our house, we have a rule that you can only have dessert if you finish your meal. And that's a really hard rule for our kids and for the grown-ups in our house as well. Well, grown-ups have lots of rules that we need to follow, too, and a lot of them are just really the same rules that you guys have. Um, Sometimes the consequences are bigger. Um, What are some rules that you know that your parents follow? Caleb. Listening to God. Listening to God? Nice. Yeah, Ellie? Oh, it's okay. How about you, Andy? Don't spend everything on their credit card every time they go to the store. Yeah, that's a rule they probably have. Don't spend all of their money. Uh, don't spend all of their credit card credit. Yes, Caleb? Um, they, don't, they don't drive a car without a driver's Totally, yeah. They don't drive a car without a driver's license. Chloe? Um, they can't leave their kids um, at a store by themselves. That's right. We do not leave you at stores by yourself. That is a rule that we follow. 
<laughs> well, there's definitely a lot of rules that grown-ups uh, have to follow, and, and, and probably way more than kids have to follow, but the most important rules that we follow are, aren't about driving, they're not about spending our money or taking care of our kids. It's actually the, the most important rules that we have are God's rules, His commandments, which I know you guys have been learning about downstairs. And God's rules are so important sometimes that God's people, they make a covenant. Do you guys know what a covenant is? Yeah, a covenant is like a super promise. Um, your mommy and your daddy made a super promise. They made a covenant to each other when they got married. And God actually makes a super promise with us. And we make a super promise with Him. And, and His promise is that He'll take care of us. He's going to love us. He's going to give us everything that we need. That's His side of the super promise. And our side of the super promise is that we listen and we obey Him. And you know what? Life is really, really, really good when we listen and obey and when we keep our side of the promise. Uh, but sometimes we can't keep our side of the super promise. Sometimes it's really hard. We just talked about that. Sometimes we don't want to follow the rules. And not just you kids, but also us grown-ups as well. But you know what the best part of God's super promises? Do you know? God never breaks His super promise, even if there are times that we can't keep our side of the super promise. And if we have a hard time following rules at school, if we have a hard time following rules on the sports field or at home, do you know what we can do? We can pray to God, and we can ask that God would help us follow His rules. And that's something that I pray for a lot. That's something that your parents probably pray for a lot as well. And so let's take time now to pray for ourselves and for our parents. Can you guys pray with me? All right, let's say, Dear God, thank you for your super promise. Please help us and help our grown-ups to follow your rules and walk in your ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Head back to your seats. Let's give them a round of applause. They're awesome. It's also very revealing of, like, how parents are doing parenting their kids, like, you know, <laughs> the answers they give. All the parents did great today, so... Well, this morning, we're, we're going to be walking through chapter 10 of Nehemiah, uh, and what you see is a very natural flow between chapters 8, 9, and 10. And there's this progression that demonstrates what sanctification is in the life of a believer and what that looks like. And it begins with God's Word in chapter 8, it then continues on into confession in chapter 9, and then here in chapter 10, we have repentance. What God's people experience in the book of Nehemiah, it foreshadows our experience of, of being transformed to be more like Christ as we follow Him. That's what sanctification is. That pattern is identical. So we read and hear and understand God's Word. It, it leads us to acknowledge where we might fall short, and so, and so we confess those shortcomings to God and to one another, and then we actively turn away from our shortcomings and take steps toward what God has laid out for us in His Word. So that last step is repentance. And chapter 10 answers the question that many Israelites had after hearing God's Word. They're celebrating His goodness, and they're mourning their own sinfulness, and they would ask, what do we do now? What's next for us? As Israel is confronted by God and their own sin, we see that they don't just confess their sin and then wallow in it. 
So they don't throw their hands up in the air and they say, well, we better just get used to being here since this is all we've known, this is all our forefathers knew. But despite their failure to uphold their covenant with God, despite their repeated failure to listen and obey God, which is communicated in very honest, open confession in chapter 9 of this habitual sin that spans generations, Israel renews and they reaffirm their covenant with the Lord. They're so affected by God's Word and and their reflection on who He is and what He's done. It's a moment where collectively there's this sense of, guys, this is really serious God is really good, and things are genuinely better all around when we're following Him. So let's commit all together to doing what we've been called to do as God's people. Look at verse 28 in chapter 10 of Nehemiah. It says, the rest of the people, the priests, the the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His rules and His statutes." So the way that Israel makes an effort to take things seriously again is by creating a new covenant. What is a covenant? We've used that word a couple of times now. Covenants are really important in the Bible. They're agreements which are created between two parties. And they're not contracts as we know them today. And one of the main differences is that in a contract, there's an agreement between two parties uh, where services or goods or money are exchanged back and forth. And when either party fails to uphold their end of the contract, that contract becomes void. You can leave a contract if you want to. There's often an exit clause in a contract. But a covenant is fundamentally different. A covenant is not an agreement, but it's a pair of pledges that are made. It's a perpetually ongoing promise that each party makes, which is independent of the other person's actions. So where contracts are materially based on the exchange of goods, services, money, covenants are relationally based. This is what a marriage covenant is. Uh, one of really the only covenants that we recognize as a society today. Marriage is not a contract. Even though culture might treat them as such, biblical marriage is a covenant relationship. It's a pair of pledges that are being made simultaneously. And it's incredibly weighty because there is an understanding that when you make a covenant, you will not break your side of the covenant. You're pledged to love, to care for, to be faithful to the other person, even if the other person breaks their pledge or fails to fulfill their pledge. And biblical covenant marriage happens when two people simultaneously make permanent binding promises kind of at one another. And you hear this often when you go to a wedding, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. There are no contingencies. There are no terms. There are no conditions. Just a simple promise that's made from one person to the other and then back again. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. 
what you see at the beginning of chapter 10 is actually very similar to a wedding ceremony, uh, which we're often used to seeing. And this speaks to the importance of this moment for Israel. It's not lost on them what they're doing as they enter into a covenant. It's actually quite beautiful. As God's people hear God's word, as God, uh, God's spirit moves in the hearts of God's people, they, they look for a way to take their confession seriously. So what they do is they cut a covenant with God. They make a collective pledge together. Now, this isn't the first time God's people will do this. Uh, you see it happening in Joshua chapter 24. You see the kings Hezekiah and Josiah doing this in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and 34, if you want to read into that. But what it shows, whenever it does happen, is that God's people are very serious. They're doing what James exhorts us to do in James chapter 1 verse 22 when he says, but, do, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So they're doing something. Now, there are a few things I want to draw your attention to as we walk through these earlier verses, which I think are really important, and they surround around uh, the people who make the covenant, the terms of the covenant, and the order of events. So the people, the terms, the ordering. First, the people. Look at verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles. What we're seeing in Nehemiah during Israel's uh, spiritual rebuilding that's taking place is not merely an individual experience. Uh, but it's a collective experience of worship and confession and now repentance. This is not to say that people didn't experience God personally through His Word and in their own hearts, but what's modeled for us in the book of Nehemiah is what it looks like for an entire community to experience God and for an entire community to figure out what to do next together. And this is important for us because of how much we tend to lean toward individualism today, often asking the question, what is my takeaway, or what do I need to do now? And it's not to say that these aren't important questions to ask, but they should not replace the question which Israel is asking as they stand together as one, which is, what is our takeaway from all of this? What do we need to do now? Well, what does that look like for us today? I'll admit it's much easier to only worry about ourselves and what we're responsible for. But I think the way that this plays out is through initiating and responding. Initiating and responding as a community. And this is what I mean. There are times when our community, people in our community, whether that's in a one-on-one -on -one interaction, maybe it's in a small group setting, maybe it's a church-wide setting like this, someone will initiate something. You might be reading the Bible with someone, and they might say, man, I'm really challenged by this idea of loving my neighbors. I, I don't do this very well. Let's bake some cookies and drop them off for people, it just maybe as a start. I've never done anything like this. And then there's an opportunity to respond to that and say, yes, that's a good idea. I, I also struggle loving my neighbors. Let's bake some cookies and drop them off for our neighbors. One of the ways this just happened on a larger scale is with our building team. So Luke Showalter, who you saw reading the scripture, he did a great job pronouncing all those names. Thank you very much, Luke, by the way. Um, he's our deacon over uh, the building, uh, buildings, uh, and he has a deep conviction for being a good steward of what God has given us in this building and the parish next door. He's done such a great job. And, and, and what he has communicated is, essentially this. He's initiated. He said, hey, let's gather together for a work day, and let's take care of what God has blessed us with. 
And a lot of people responded and showed up. Like, honestly, more than ever had showed up yesterday at our workday. It was awesome. We had to go to Home Depot to get more rakes so that people could rake. Like, that's a, an excellent problem to have. Yesterday was probably the most fruitful workday that I've seen at Mercy House in years. It was absolutely awesome. But there was an initiation and a response from the community. In chapter 10, it's the leaders who initiate this covenant, and then everyone responds and joins into it as well. God doesn't just call individuals. He definitely does, and that's what we talked about specifically looking at Nehemiah's personal story of being called into this work. But he calls us collectively as a community as well to follow him. And this is in order to do things that none of us would be able to do as individuals, just like the wall being built all around Jerusalem couldn't be built by any single person, but it required a collective response, a collective effort to serve, a collective diversity of gifts and skills, and a collective willingness to answer God's call to rebuild. So the people of God gather, they make this covenant, and the terms of which are what I would want to look at next. So look at the second part of verse 29. It says, and, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. So it's important to note that the Israelites aren't starting from scratch here. So they're not creating new bylaws for themselves. They're not creating a new vision statement. They're acknowledging that they've been given everything that they've needed. God had given them his word, and that's what they are committing themselves to. I think this is so crucial to what it means to be a faith community for them because God's word was what bonded them together and gave them direction. They were not getting together and electing a new leader, but they were actually affirming God's leadership over them. They yielded ultimately to God's word, not new initiatives, not a new plan. This wasn't like Jerusalem 2.0. This is a realization that the initial plan wasn't flawed, but their failure to execute it was the issue. And so they built the foundation of their community on the one thing that never changes, God and his word. So for us, a question to ask is, what do we center ourselves around as a faith community? What, What do we ultimately appeal to? So sure, sure, Mercy House has a tagline. If you've been around for any amount of time, you'd know we say we're a household of faith being built by the mercy of God. That's the tagline. We also have a vision statement. This is going to be on your screens. A gospel-centered family on mission to make disciples who make disciples on campuses, communities, and among the unreached people of the world. It's a great vision statement. But as a community, we don't yield to this mission statement. We don't defer to these. Like the, the vision statement is not our governing, our governing force. We can change those words. They're only as valuable as their ability to articulate how we understand our vision as we receive it from the actual governing force and the ultimate authority, which is God and what he's revealed to us in his word. God's people keep God's word as the foundation of everything that they do. And that's what we seek to do here as a church. So what we see is God's people coming together. They make a covenant following God's laws, His, his word, but, but then the ordering of all of these events is really important. So remember that this covenant is an act of repentance, and it is a response to God's grace. Israel is responding to who God is, who He's repeatedly de- demonstrated Himself to be. 
This is not a way for them to act in order to get something from God. They've actually acknowledged what God has already done in chapter 9. And what, what they're saying is, oh, wow, like God never stopped doing what he promised that he would do, even when we repeatedly broke our promises to God. Repentance and walking in obedience is always a response to what God has done. Sanctification in our lives must happen in the order that we're actually seeing in chapters 8, 9, and 10. We cannot have true confession if we don't know what God's standards are, which we can learn by reading, hearing, and understanding God's Word. And we can't repent and turn away from sin that, we've, uh, that we haven't acknowledged and confessed before the Lord. If we haven't taken time to understand that we in our own strength are powerless over that sin, and then the steps that we take in the opposite direction during repentance, they're faith-filled as we trust God in His rules and His ways, but as we also rely on His ability to sustain us in obedience. And so sanctification is a process, and you cannot shortcut any of the steps. If you try to do repentance without hearing God's law, without being affected by it, without confessing your sin, it's merely behavior modification. It's just us wanting to change something about ourselves that we might not like. But true repentance, which leads to a genuine transformation, comes through God's Word with confession, and then it leads to steps of active repentance. So when you put the people and the terms, and the ordering of this covenant that Israel is making, what you see, I think, is a recipe for how we understand church membership today. It's a picture, of, uh, the, it's a picture that we get of God's people joining together. They enter into this covenant to walk in God's ways as a response to who He is. So church membership is not a 21st century invention because we love drawing uh, affiliations. We love tracking those. It's a biblical concept that we see derived all the way here in the Old Testament about being a part of a covenant community. And that's what we see in God's Word, and, and, and that's what we see in these chapters of Nehemiah playing out. And so to close our time, I want to scan through the rest of the, the book. Uh, because we know that there is this broad term, uh, the broad terms of, of the covenant community, uh, which are to follow God's law and to walk in His ways. That's very broad. But they also expand the terms by providing a, a, a special focus on specific areas of sin that they just habitually neglected. And they committed together to walk in God's laws and His ways with, with an added emphasis on relating to their relationships with one another, their conception of work and rest, their community as a whole, uh, their religious responsibilities, and their generosity. So I'm going to cruise through these real quick. So look at verse 30. It says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So we unpacked this idea last week. God's people are recommitting themselves to obey God when it came to His commands to be different than those around them and to not be unequally yoked, to borrow a term from the New Testament, but instead to protect and safeguard the community of God's people. So this is not to say that people outside of the nation of God did not have access to God. We have several examples, including maybe most notably Rahab um, and Ruth, who are converted through faith and become members of God's family. 
But you see over and over again that when God's people didn't listen to God regarding intermarriage, it led them to compromise on their convictions and their calling as God's people. It ultimately led them astray. It was the cause for a lot of frustration, hurt, pain, sin, waywardness, which impacted not just themselves and their family, but the entire community. And so God's people, having acknowledged this as a part of their past, and their unwillingness to listen and the consequences of that, they say, you know what, we pledge to not do this anymore. Look at the first part of 31, the next verse. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. So Israel didn't intermarry, that's what they're committing themselves to, but they also uh, didn't create a, a commune just to live by themselves. They lived with other people from other lands, people who didn't have the same convictions that they had to follow God, particularly God's laws concerning rest from work, having a Sabbath. And so Israel commits themselves uh, to not compromising where it would have been incredibly convenient for them. The groceries are basically being brought into where they are. On the Sabbath day, people understood outside of God's community, hey, all these Jews get together on one day. It'd be really efficient if we just tried to bring all of our marketplace to them on that day. And so they're making a pledge. Even though it would be highly convenient, they pledge to keep the Sabbath day holy, to not make purchases on that day, and to actually rest. Look at the second part of verse 31 there. It says, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, Israel commits themselves to honoring God's commands to not only honor the Sabbath day, but actually the Sabbath year. We don't talk a lot about the Sabbath year. This is a command that's given uh, by God to God's people. You see this in Leviticus 25, um, to let the land rest for a year and to not plant any crops on it. And additionally, later on in Deuteronomy 15, um, it, there, there's a command to clear all of the debts and to set all of the servants free. Now, this might sound really awesome, but it would take a tremendous amount of faith and trust in God. Like, imagine quitting your job on, at the end of every sixth year and then taking an, a whole year of just unpaid time. Like, you're just out of work for a year. Some of you are smiling, like, yeah, that would be really cool. It would be really stressful for the majority of us. Like, imagine on the other side of that, if you were a business owner and on the seventh year, you looked at all of the unpaid invoices and, and, and all of the overdue invoices, and you just deleted them and wiped them clean. That would be crazy. Again, it would take tremendous faith and trust to obey this command as a community. But what they do is they say, you know what? I'm going to do it. You should do it too. And everyone says that. So there's a communal pledging to take on this crazy, crazy thing that God is calling them to do. Look at verses 32 and 34. It says, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at, a, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. God had established laws and commands for how God's people would support the temple operations. This is very practical. And 
Here we see some of the technical details uh, in these verses that lay out how it all works, but the general idea is that God's people would value and support the work that's happening in the temple. Everyone contributed, and it would be proportional to their income so that the temple could function. Today, a lot of people view giving to the church as something that is charitable, something that is... um, extra generous of us. But biblically, the stewardship of resources for every family included these contributions as a responsibility and a duty. It wasn't something extra that you did out of the goodness of your heart. It was something that they were obligated to do. Giving money to the temple uh, is never biblically articulated as giving a gift, but actually bringing a payment. It was Israel's first and most important bill. That's how it's articulated in the Bible. Now, God doesn't set this up. He doesn't set up this entire economic system because He just wants our money. That's never what it was about. God didn't need Israel's resources. God set up this entire economic system to care for His priests and His ministers and to invite all of God's people to join in and do that same thing and to participate with that experience and to understand the idea of faithful investing into the things of God. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about a lot of things in the Sermon on the Mount, but he he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart be also. And so God didn't ultimately want or need their investment of money. What he was trying to do was to to, um, initiate and encourage the faithful investment of their hearts into what he was doing. So I preached a whole sermon on tithing last year. Um, it's, It's called Final instructions, it's the last sermon from the Fractured Church series. So if you want to hear more about the nuances and the details uh, of, of how to understand biblical tithing, or if you're just curious, I encourage you to take a listen to that. You can reach out to me. I'd love to talk about it more. A, a lot of these pledges, as you read through them, they seem strange. Uh, but Israel's response stems from a genuinely important question of, what if we took God's word seriously? What if we actually obeyed what He commanded us to do, even if it were inconvenient to do so, even if we may disagree with it a little bit? The the, the list might also seem strange because it represents specific things that Israel as a community struggled with. There's some overlap with us, but I'm sure if we were to pick the top five areas of brokenness in our community and what we wanted to commit as a community to repent of, it might look different than their list. But their final commitment is one that we ought to hear and we ought to resonate with today because um, it stands true regardless of similarities or differences between our communities. And it's the last sentence in verse 39. This is their pledge. They say, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. Mercy House is a household of faith that's being built by the mercy of God. Our church is not this building that is beautiful, that has new shrink wrap on the windows to keep this energy efficient and the heat in and the cold out. It's not the building. Our, our church is not this plot of land that we have here and next door. It's the people and the covenant community of believers sitting in this room. The, the last pledge that's made by the people of Israel is not just about the physical temple, but, but the house of their God represented God himself and what, he exists, and, and, and what it, as the house of God, existed to serve, which was God and 
one another. And so the question for us is, are we neglecting one another as a community? Are we neglecting our body? And how can we commit ourselves, maybe recommit ourselves to being part of a collective body as we follow Jesus together? How can we initiate ways to do this, and how can we respond to people's initiation to do this? Israel is excited about God's Word. They're, they're really remorseful in their sin. Um, their, their, their grief is real, yet they take time to hope in God, and they, and they try to live like they are actually called to live. But the reality is that ultimately they're going to fail. So the final chapter of Nehemiah, spoiler alert, it's going to reveal that after a relatively short period of time, Nehemiah goes back home to Persia, he comes back to check on Israel, and he walks in on Israel, actively breaking almost every single one of these points of the covenant, the covenant that they are so gung-ho about recommitting to. But it's nothing new. It shouldn't be surprising to us as we read and understand the narrative of this repeating pattern and habit that Israel has that they just couldn't break out of. What Israel shows us is that the original covenant that God creates is impossible for humans to uphold. A covenant that relied on the faithfulness and obedience of humans is impossible because of the sin that is inside of us. And that's why the gospel is such incredible news. God creates a new covenant with us. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and having blessed it, said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. What Jesus instituted at the final supper was the new covenant that we see promised in Jeremiah 31. And so remember, covenants included pledges and blessings when those pledges are fulfilled, but it also includes curses for when a covenant is broken. You see this right here in chapter 10. Look at verse 28 and 29. It says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, the Lord our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. They did this knowingly, that, that, that there was a curse for breaking this covenant, and it would be excommunication from God, excommunication from His community, separation from God, eternal death. And that's what Jesus does in this new covenant. What he does is he, he doesn't only just fulfill his side of the covenant, but he bears our curse when we fail it. So what he does is he promises to love us, to take care of us, to provide for us, to protect us, to be everything that we need. And the old covenant, which relied on our obedience, is replaced with this new covenant, which is by faith and no longer by works. And when we place our faith in Jesus, even when we break our side of the covenant, even when we are disobedient, when we don't walk in His ways, when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. And what He does is He takes that curse of us breaking the covenant, He takes that upon Himself. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He was bearing the curse of our sin, the curse that we deserved. 
And when God holds both ends of the covenant, that covenant stands for eternity. God is faithful mercy house. And that's what grace is. That's the gospel. So if you're a Christian this morning, this is the covenant that you're a part of. Remember what we said at the beginning. Our obedience does not enable the covenant. We're we're already seeing that God enables the covenant on both sides. He holds both sides of the covenant. But our obedience is a response to God's goodness and His grace in holding this covenant together. The church of Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of God's vision for a covenant community. So here in chapter 10, we're seeing a shadow of what that looks like, but, but what they lacked was a new covenant. They lacked the, the work of Jesus on the cross. They, they lacked the Holy Spirit living inside them, and those are all things that we have access to today. And so we have this incredible opportunity to live in a covenant community together, which I want to invite you all into to consider becoming a member of this covenant community. So if this is your first time, you might be like, oh, it's weird they're asking me to become a member of my first time, but maybe this is enough information for you, that we're a church family, that we hold Scripture in the highest regard possible, that we strive to love God and love other people, and we care about reaching the lost people with the gospel. That might be enough for you. So if it is, I encourage you to become a member. Some of you have been coming for a while now. You've been attending, you're kind of checking things out, and I want to encourage you to become a member of our church, to live in community, to be blessed on a personal level by the church, um, and also to come and to bless members of our church with your gifts as well. There is a level of this that if you are just attending, you're not able to fully tap into. And the difference is akin to a couple who is just dating and a couple who has committed themselves into a covenant with one another. And so we would invite you to join in covenant with us, with the Lord, with one another, and to live transparently and accountably together with us. If you're interested in becoming a member, we have one more membership class before the end of the year. You can just fill out the card that's on the seat right in front of you. I think there's a checkbox that says, I want to become a member. We'll reach out to you with all of the details and what the next steps are. There is a process. You can ask questions. But if you're someone who's been sitting on the fence and you're wondering, oh, should I become a member or should I not? Consider this a strong exhortation to become a member of Mercy House, to hop off the fence and join this covenant community. If you're already a member and actively engaged in our community, isn't it awesome? (laughs) Like, it it is not perfect, for sure. It is pretty messy to be a member of our church. But if we learn nothing else from studying 1 Corinthians last semester, like, a messy church is just a real church. And I am personally just so thankful for those of you who have leaned in over these past couple years at time, then it would be really easy not to lean in. And it has been such a joy to do life with all of you guys. Um, And it's just something that is very near and dear to my heart. I love this community. It's a community I've been a part of since I was in college and sat in the back row and didn't really know Jesus. And so it's very sweet to me. Um, Our Wednesday night crew, so people who are coming out to that, others who have been intentional serving downstairs and upstairs up here, those have sent encouragement and prayer uh, and who are just being present in our lives. It's been so sweet. I have no application from this other than just to praise God and thank you and thank Him for letting me be a part of this church community. So thank you and thank God. And as we finish chapter 10, let us all walk together in God's laws and in all of his ways, and let us not neglect the house of our God.
Let's pray. Father, you are the head of our house. God, thank you that you have made a house and have built this house and invited us into your family. God, thank you for how you have sustained this little expression of your church here in Amherst, Massachusetts, Massachusetts for the past 20 years, God. Thank you for all of the other churches that you miraculously sustain in the valley um, and to the ends of the earth, God. And we thank you so much for how you have done the impossible, uh, which is to somehow uphold both ends of this covenant. And by your grace, you've invited us to just experience the benefits of this covenant relationship, Lord. Help us to respond to that in faithful obedience to you, God, not as a means of enabling this covenant, God, but as a, an appreciation for what you have done, God, and an acknowledgement that your ways are the best ways, God. That's why we obey you. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that we as a community would join together in this covenant, Lord, to follow you, to devote ourselves to you, to love you from the core of who we are, to commit ourselves to prayer, to the reading of your word and the listening and obeying of your word, to the fellowship with one another, and to the mission, Lord, that we'd be all, that we'd all joined together in doing all of those things worshipfully before you. God, thank you so much for the people who have committed themselves to this community, Lord. Thank you for their many sacrifices. Thank you for their time. Thank you for their investments of their resources and their hearts, God. Lord, thank you for how uh, we have this community and this family of believers to walk in as we follow you. And Lord, we pray that you would grow us uh, just not just in numbers, Lord, but in depth um, in our understanding of who you are, but also our relationships with one another. God, we thank you for our children. Lord, thank you for this next generation that's growing up right before our eyes. Lord, help us as a community uh, commit ourselves to loving them and raising them, God. And we pray that um, they would inherit uh, the righteousness that we are forging as we follow you, and we pray that they would be further sanctified. Um, and Lord, we pray that you would guard them and protect their hearts uh, from sin and the evil one. And Lord, help us as a community uh, continue to grow um, in our understanding of you in your word. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.